This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Well, hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for a a great TraumaCast interview today. Uh, We're going to be talking with Dr. Gene Moore, who needs a little introduction. He's the uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Trauma. Uh, and is at uh, Denver Health and Trauma Center. Uh, he published a recent randomized trial of goal-directed hemostatic resuscitation for trauma-induced coagulopathy of uh, thromboelastography versus conventional coagulation assays. Uh, th- this is a, a really interesting and major trial, and uh, Dr. Moore, thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, and also on the line, we have uh, two of my co-moderators for the TraumaCast program, uh, Andrew Bernard and Dave Morris. Thanks a lot for joining us, guys. Yes, sir. Excited for this. All right. So why don't we uh, jump right into it and uh, talk about this study? Uh, so, so Dr. Moore, just to get started, if you had to explain, you know, in, in a couple of sentences, what, what do you think are the major advantages of TEG or Rotem over conventional coagulation assays? Well, first of all, I believe you can get uh, results uh, quicker than with conventional. Uh, Number two, I think these viscoelastic assays provide a more comprehensive assessment of the clotting system than conventional. And uh, now I think, uh, in this study anyway, we have shown, uh, and others have suggested, that uh, appropriate uh, approach to the patient with uncontrolled bleeding is goal-directed hemostasis rather than fixed uh, ratios of blood products. And do you think there's anything that the conventional coag assays are are better at or superior for versus TEG or Rotem? No, I don't see anything that's better. Uh, the as you probably saw recently, there was a comprehensive multi-center uh, assessment of INR and predicting uh, the need for blood products from the pediatric group. And they concluded, which I think a lot of us have, that uh, INR is a biomarker of injury, not a tight calibration for what's needed uh, for transfusion. Uh, it's interesting that the, uh, as you know, the San Francisco and London groups promoted uh, INR as a marker of uh, coagulopathy and then uh, offered the mechanism of activated protein C which, uh, as you know, activated protein C ostensibly uh, occur, ostensible effects on altered uh, thrombin generation is through the cleavage of activated 5 and activated 8. If that's the case, that should affect the uh, partial thromboplastin time, not the prothrombin time. So to uh, suggest that INR is the marker for those patients who need Bleeding, and this is based on activated protein C, to, seems to be uh, incongruous. Furthermore, uh, what struck us is when the uh, San Francisco group did their uh, 
principal component analysis. In fact, uh, there were different groups that appeared to be consistent with activated protein C and those who didn't. But most distinctly, there was a, another component that was uh, largely uh, due to hyperfibrinolysis. So, in sum, I don't think, I don't see any advantage to any of the conventional coagulation profiles. And I would argue that the beauty of the viscoelastis is that they offer us a comprehensive assessment of clot formation and degradation. Now, that's not to say they, they can't be improved upon, but at this moment, they appear to be, to me anyway, the most uh, reliable and accurate ways to assess blood component need in the patient who is at risk for massive transfusion. So viscoelastic testing you know, has been around for decades, obviously, and uh, just why do you think it, it never caught on, really only with the transplant folks, uh, until recently, and, and now it's you know coming on like gangbusters? What do you think took us so long to come around? <laughs> well, that's that's a great point. And, and ironically, uh, thromboastrophy started at the University of Colorado, and it started with uh, Henry Swan uh, in the mid 1950s when he was doing. Uh, hypothermic arrest for uh, intracardiac uh, surgery. And, of course, as you know, in the mid-50s, there was no cardiopulmonary bypass. So he did research in hibernating animals and extracted that to uh, the humans. And when he put these uh, kids with congenital defects asleep, he found that they had a massive coagulopathy. Well, then he uh, went to a meeting and presented his data in Europe, and he got uh, uh, the uh, lab tech from uh, Hartlett's lab to come over to uh, Denver to help work on coagulation. And, in fact, with the uh, former uh, viscoelastic assay, they defined uh, hypothermia-induced uh, hypocoagulability and particularly fibrinolysis in these children, and they uh, finessed that and were able to proceed on. And without that revelation, uh, the whole field of uh, cardiac surgery probably would have been delayed decades. Remarkably, a similar story uh, exists in liver transplant, because right across the hall from Henry Swan's lab was a guy you know, Thomas Starzl. His first child, a three-year-old, uh, had a take of the liver but died of exsanguination. When he presented at M&M's, Swan was there and said, well, you might have problems like we had. So he took that German fellow into his lab, and sure enough, fibrinolysis was identified during the anapatic phase of liver trauma, uh, liver surgery. And again, that probably advanced the field uh, at least a decade before they would have discovered that otherwise. So you're right, it's been here for at least 50 years in the state of Colorado. Now, the reason it took so long is twofold. Number one, the equipment was very uh, cumbersome uh, and sensitive to motion and technical uh, features so that logistically it's very difficult to apply in uh, other than very specialized laboratories such as a cardiac or liver transplant that did them every day. But perhaps more importantly, uh, the equipment uh, really didn't lend itself to any kind of uniform assessment 
and uh, was not mobile and applicable to general laboratory. So once that equipment was refined, uh, then anyone, then everyone began to look at its application. And of course, as you know, uh, its history is largely uh, rooted in cardiac surgery and liver transplant. But we didn't think about it until we started using uh, viscose elastic assays in trauma. Then suddenly the light went off. Wait a second, we're seeing the same patterns that they see in liver transplant and cardiac. So that's why the delay in us getting into it, because we didn't use it for trauma until recently. Sure. So so the message is it's a highly useful test, but also everything comes back to Denver as it should. Well, it's just ironic. I, I was presenting our first paper, uh, you know, at, at a Grand Rounds on uh, TEG, and some uh, gomer, even older than me, was, uh, came, stumbled up to the front, uh, with his cane, uh, he was literally 93 years old. He said, hey, Tex, as usual, these old gomers have something to say. He said, you ought to look up this guy, Henry Swan, and Tom Starzl, uh, and look at what they did with viscoelastic assays. I'd never heard of that before. Of course, I knew Starzl and Swan well. And I looked it up, and sure enough, he was absolutely correct. You go look it up yourself. Swan and Starzl were the first to use uh, thromboelastography in the United States, right out of Denver. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, and so we started using Rotem at uh, in Portland at level one I work at. At level two, we aren't using it. Um, how about you, Andrew and Dave? Are, are you guys using Tag or Rotem, Kentucky and Utah? Well, the clinical utility at Kentucky has mirrored what. Uh, Dr. Moore described it was a cardiac tool and a liver transplant tool, and it's only been in the past, I would say, six years, uh, five years maybe, that we've been applying it for trauma. We've augmented the number of devices that we use or that are available to us so that we can expand our program and provide 24-7 uh, availability because before it was on call for a cardiac case or a liver transplant case, we had to expand the clinical lab's ability to offer the service. But, uh, but yes, now we use it for all of our high-level activations. How about you, Dave? I would say um, my experience is maybe maybe the opposite of Andrew's, where we started using it in trauma, and then the resonance cross-pollinated over to HPV and some of the other services and has seen it widely adopted after that. Um, I, I have a question, though. If, if you do not have the rapid assay available, if you don't have Rotem or rapid TEG, um, is there still the same clinical utility, Dr. Moore? It seems like if you're waiting for those curves to be generated, you're losing uh, time, and, and that, that's a significant limitation. Well, uh, of course, both devices are predicated on the rapid assay, and they are commercially available, and we think the rapid assay ought to be used uh, for trauma care. That is... Uh, using uh, tissue factor as the dominant uh, activator. Of course, uh, TEG uses kale in addition to that. But uh, those results, first of all, come back uh, a lot faster than PT and PTT. Uh, and particularly if your laboratory is adjacent to your emergency department operating room, which we are fortunate to have, uh, the uh, ACT, uh, as you know, is uh, uh, within 
two minutes, uh, then the angle and MA are within 25 minutes. And by that time, you pretty much have figured out the major products you need to, to uh, use. Now, there are, in fact, uh, a lot more sensitive uh, ways to assess what products we need, and particularly with the uh, computerized velocity analysis of the uh, first curve generated after uh, the clock formation. We now have uh, data that suggests that uh, literally within five minutes we can predict uh, who's going to need uh, what product with uh, computer analysis of velocity of uh, the curve generation. And as you know, Rotom has a 10, uh, which they uh, have found to be highly predictive of the need for uh, component therapy. So I, I would uh, argue that if they are in proximity to where you need them, PD, OR, ICU, that they are very uh, efficient. So, so Dr. Moore, to get into your uh, your study and your design, so you you obviously wanted to look at patients that were were bleeding and and unstable, uh, and the entry criteria included uh, vital signs, hypotension, and then injury patterns. Um, and just curious, were those vital signs from the field, or were they arrival vital signs, or or could it have been either? Well, they were they started with the field, so uh, for many years here, uh, we've had, instead of using uh, ABT and ABC and TASH and all the other alphabetical soup, uh, we simply go on the premise that we should uh, prime the system for a massive transfusion with vital signs in the field, or if they develop in the uh, ED, and then uh, if they have the uh, physiologic derangements, uh, anatomic derangements, and then we proceed on to activate the transfusion. So that was a long-standing protocol. Uh, we just happened to have that in place when we began the study. But that's sort of our concept is obviously the paramedic can't tell you very with very, very much precision of what the injury patterns are, but they can certainly give you the vital signs over the intercom. Okay. And then uh, in your design or how you – Set up the protocol, uh, so you would get the ACT at five minutes, uh, and then you extrapolated from that uh, to predict an abnormal alpha angle and, and MA, and started product resuscitation uh, based on that. Maybe you just want to, uh, you know, review that protocol real quickly. Well, actually, uh, most of the cases we did not uh, provide uh, additional products beyond FFP because the ACT exceeding 140 is relatively unusual. With those that did have an ACT over 140, then we did begin presumptive uh, multiple uh, products. But most patients, we simply ran through uh, the process as they became available to us. That is that uh, most patients with major transfusion, uh, of course, end up having platelets given to them uh, and then we proceed on to look at uh, angle for cryo and MA for platelets. We actually uh, gave little cryo, and uh, we gave, you know, compared to other studies, remarkably uh, little platelets. But fundamentally, uh, that's how it evolved was the 
as the curve unfolded, we used the various uh, indices to determine what product to give. And again, these are reported, these are repeated every 15 minutes uh, or as much as needed. And so it's sort of a dynamic process. Uh, most of these, of course, were done in the operating room. Uh, if these people were that sick that they needed a massive transfusion protocol, uh, virtually all of them were in the operating room. And there we have uh, multiple computers set up so we can actually see the old profile and see the new one being generated. And then the uh, you mentioned the conventional coag assays in the paper says it took uh, 40 to 45 minutes. So so how were you resuscitating the conventional patients while you were waiting for those coag results? Well, our standard protocol here is uh, uh, one to two. That is, we give uh, one unit of plasma for every two units of red cells, and that's been a long-standing protocol here too. Uh, that's been our preemptive uh, transfusion in the ED for uh, probably 15 years. Uh, before that, it actually was a one to four back in the 1980s. But uh, we changed to uh, one to two about 1995, I believe, something like that. Dr. Moore, you're initial cooler is two plasmas, four reds, as I saw, and ours is the same at Kentucky. Are your subsequent coolers also two and four, and is there any automation for cryoprecipitate? No, no the, the cores are uh, of that design unless we indicate otherwise. So, uh, so I, you get the two to four, and then uh, usually by the time you dump four units of red cells and two of plasma somebody, you got the tag uh, done. Uh, if you don't, then we continue the uh, the two to four. So as you see, now, the to uh, emphasize, uh, I, I put the uh, the tag draw uh, up with the blood gas. So when someone comes in, unless they literally need us to open their chest, uh, wrap their pelvis, uh, the first thing we do at every time activation is obtain a blood gas and a tag. So literally within 15 minutes, we start seeing that profile uh, presented in our ED. And again, within a half hour, we got a lot of information. And it's very few patients that we end up giving two units of uh, FFP and four units of red cells uh, within 20 minutes. If they are, they probably doesn't matter what we give them. <laughs> right. Do you think that the efficacy that you saw in the TEG group mechanistically was related to earlier initiation of cryoprecipitate? And a related question I have is, is it the TEG here or is it the rapid TEG here that's key? Because my TEG isn't rapid. It's not coming as fast as yours. Would you expect me to be able to achieve the same efficacy you've seen if I'm 15 minutes later in getting results than you? That's a two-part question. Yeah, I understand. Well, let me go with the easy one, and that is the latter. The rapid tag was developed, uh, as its name uh, indicates, to be available quicker. The Kaolin is a standard, uh, was the standard tag, which is probably what you use. Now, for research purposes, frankly, 
of AKO and gives you a little more calibration of uh, the derangements in clotting. So you sacrifice a little bit of that when you get the rapid, but we think it's relatively clinically unimportant, so we do uh, the rapid. But you're right, it's an extra 10 to 15 minutes. But I, most, most centers now are using citrated rapids, uh, the least the ones I work with. Like uh, Houston, for example, we collaborate with them. In Pittsburgh, for example, uh, they have converted to citrated rapids. All right. So uh, you guys had some pretty uh, exciting and interesting results. So let, let, let's jump into the results. And, and the, the main endpoint was mortality. And your deaths in the intention to treat were 36% with conventional coags and 20% with TEG. Uh, but hemorrhagic deaths, at least in that cohort, uh, weren't significantly different. So, so maybe you could just comment on, you know, the mortality benefit you saw and 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 what you think about the the causes of death, especially if the hemorrhagic deaths were identical between the groups. Well, first of all, I would uh, submit that our analysis, as well as most studies in the literature, can't really uh, define why people died. Uh, exsanguination death uh, or death from hemorrhage uh, means they got a lot of red cells. What it doesn't uh, discern is whether they had a torn aorta or pull it through their uh, coronal vein and you couldn't get control of it. So this whole issue of uh, dying from uh, uncontrolled hemorrhage is, uh, is, has been a, so far has been uh, a very difficult uh, part of our research, and the same in the proper trial, uh, in the prompt trial, the same thing. It was subjective, you know, did they die of bleeding? Well, what does it mean? Did they die of bleeding because the surgeon couldn't get control of it, or did they die of bleeding because they got a coagulopathy? So that whole term of dying of bleeding, I think, is uh, very confusing at this point, is not very uh, objective and precise from a scientific viewpoint. And so the, it was interesting, the conventional coag patients got more plasma platelets and, and cryo early in resuscitation, but they had worse survival. Um, and just off the face value, that seems counter to the one-to-one -one data. You know, if they got more of a one-to-one, -one, you know, the conventional thinking would be that they should have done better. So, so what, what do you think explains the mortality benefit of the, the TEG group since they got less early products? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, I can answer that to you uh, directly uh, based on basic science, but I don't have the data to validate that clinically. Our uh, belief is that uh, platelets uh, can have adverse effects if presented uh, early in profound shock because the uh, anti-metabolites uh, for example, succinate that many of you guys heard uh, present at the Western Trauma, activate the platelets and produce a, uh, a lot of granular disease, uh, granular release, which is perhaps more pro-coagulant, uh, and then render the platelet ineffective. So we think uh, a lot of the signal is due to the timing of uh, platelet uh, administration, and we think it ought to be in the second wave. And actually, as you know, in the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one versus the one-to-one-to-two uh, uh, project, 
uh, platelets weren't given until that second round came down after six units of red cells had already been given. Mm -hmm. If yep. you look at mortality, there's no difference, suggesting at the worst, uh, giving platelets in a delayed fashion had no worse effect. Now, we do see signals in other areas. I don't know if you're familiar with the PATH study, the recent large randomized trial of giving platelets in patients with intracranial hemorrhage on platelet and a platelet therapy. Yep. And what did that show? It can be harmful. Yeah. Exactly. So we may be wrong, but there are other uh, samples, I think, examples out there suggesting that untimely platelets uh, may have adverse effects. And I think unlike plasma, to me, plasma is the uh, ultimate resuscitative agent. You know, it's, a, as you all know, a balance of pro and anticoagulants, uh, pro-fibrinolytic, antifibrinolytic. It's smarter than us. But platelets are dangerous little bastards. They respond to their environment, and they're loaded in their granules with all kinds of mediators, many of which we don't understand. But they, if they're unleashed at the wrong time for the wrong reason, I think have profound impact on how we respond to shock. That's only a hypothesis, however. <laughs> so this is uh, Dave. I have a quick question. Um, I noticed in the uh, results that there was a relatively equal amount of uh, uh, I, I guess I should say the, the Lysis-30 uh, measure was equally distributed between the two groups. Um, in the era of the use of these uh, viscoelastic studies, do you think the broad use and sometimes empiric use in the pre-hospital setting of TXA makes sense, or are we setting ourselves up for problems, do you think? Well, I think that's a very uh, important question, but one I don't think we have the answer to. I uh, personally uh, believe that in uh, in EMS systems where there's uh, relatively fast transport, I would say uh, within 30 minutes, I would prefer not to give uh, TXA in the field and rather base it on what the uh, thromboascram tells us upon arrival. On the other hand, uh, if you're in a more rural environment and you're having patients delivered by a helicopter 60 or 90 minutes away, there I think uh, there's a reasonable argument for impaired TXA, but I think it ought to be a select group that's manifesting uh, profound shock. So, so interesting on the TXA question. So, so what would you say? Uh, I mean, you gave TXA for an LY30 or, or for a D-dimer elevation, and, and what would you say to, you know, someone who says, well, uh, you know, that's not the indications by the CRASH-2 study, uh, and so we should be following that and just essentially giving it to everyone who's bleeding or at risk for bleeding. Is there any downside to that as long as they're within three hours? Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the little friendly debate that Ian Roberts and I had in uh, transfusion several months ago, uh, in which we proposed, again, these are hypotheses uh, evolving, uh, we proposed that there is uh, an entity fibrinolysis shutdown that occurs very rapidly after trauma. In fact, our data shows that in severely injured patients that uh, Fibrinolysis shutdown occurs at 80% of them within two hours. Shutdown means they're insensitive to TPA. So theoretically, providing uh, another agent 
that inhibits pyrimidolysis at a time they're already uh, uh, resistant to it uh, may have uh, adverse effects. And this is, again, a very controversial topic, uh, but there is uh, a reasonable amount of compelling uh, basic uh, work, uh, particularly uh, back in the 60s by Robert Hardway, uh, showing that uh, in animals in profound shock, pyrimidolysis is, is what maintains viability. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot about timing. And I wouldn't... Uh, dismiss TXA as being uh, important, but I think it's a very select group of patients, and I, at this point, I think it would be patients who have principally isolated uh, profound hemorrhagic shock or ischemia from an entity such as a cardiac tamponade that require prolonged transport. And as you know, we have animal data, uh, both uh, rats and pigs, and now we have it in primates, that shows that hemorrhagic shock provokes hyperfibrinolysis to the release of TPA, whereas tissue injury does not release TPA. Instead, it stimulates the production of uh, PI-1 from the endothelium and degranulation of platelets to provide PI-1. So tissue injury shuts down fibrinolysis. So on the other side of it, I would not recommend that a patient uh, who's in a motorcycle crash with a couple of femur fractures uh, without shock get TXA in the field. Sure, yeah. And so, so our massive transfusion protocol just has us giving TXA if, if massive transfusion is activated, as long as it's within three hours. Uh, Dave and Andrew, how about you guys? Are you guys giving TXA based on PEG or just empirically? It's empiric for us. How about you, Andrew? It's empiric, it's empiric for us, too. And we we use the guidelines that were laid out in that nice paper that followed CRASH that was written by Lena Napolitano and Brian Cotton and others trying to make sense of that and simmer it down for us. We use those criteria very specifically. But I'll tell you, recently, after reading the, the evidence from Denver and Houston on fibrinolysis shutdown, I've counseled my EMS folks and my, my residents and my partners to, to be judicious about application of TXA in a patient who's not obviously exsanguinating and to go more with what Dr. Moore describes of let's see what their lysis is and then give it based upon their lysis. Sure. So, so, so Dr. Moore, I mean, pretty striking mortality difference between the two groups. And, uh, I mean, did, did you guys go back and, and did you find any other factors, you know, that, that you think were different between the groups, you know, types of surgery they had, source of bleeding, uh, or do you think this was all attributable to the tag management? Well, I'm sure there are other factors, uh, but we looked back at it uh, as hard as we could, as you can imagine. Uh, interestingly, the groups are uh, incredibly well-matched. Uh, and uh, there's no way that they uh, could have, uh, there could have been biased in randomizing one group or the other because the week in which uh, either the tag was available or the conventionals, uh, you couldn't get the other data unless you were the attending and called the blood bank and said, I want to break code. 
So I don't have an answer to it. Uh, I, I, I'd be honest with you, we were somewhat surprised uh, of the uh, profound difference in survival. Uh, but we did the study as best we could, and those are the results. Dr. Morin, looking at your data, it looks like the noticeable difference in the laboratory data came at two hours, so that whatever was happening, wherever the difference was, it seemed to be early early effect that that then you benefit from or don't in the subsequent hours. That's why I asked that question earlier about whether this wasn't about really early institution of, of clotting factors that were unique to your TAG protocol. I thought your TAG protocol of the of the two plasmas, the tenet cryo and the platelets, based upon that AS, that uh, ACT140 was was very interesting. But you said that the group that had an ACT140 or greater was really quite small. So it's not as if that's a big group of folks who are getting uh, that that sort of super front-loaded bolus right away. It just seemed to me as I was looking at your data that that first two hours seems to be very key here. Whatever's happening, it seems to be in there. Well, I yeah, I I, I agree, certainly agree with you, and I, I think we all know that the data thus far in massive transfusion and coagulopathy induced death after trauma is the ball game is largely over in those first two hours. So it's critical we do the best we can those first two hours. And all I can say is that uh, without having more data, we don't have data, of course at 15, 30, 60, 90, and then 120 minutes. Uh, we're beginning to collect that granularity now, uh, but we didn't have it for this study. <clears throat> but there must have been uh, some unique features of what was given during those periods uh, that it happened to be the right product at the right time for the right patient, as they would say. And, and so the, the conventional COAG group, again, they, they got less, kind of less of all the the other products, plasma and platelets and cryo, uh, which was interesting. Um, so, so do you think do you think it's all the platelet effect, or do you think it's it's just it's it's more selective and and withholding a lot of those things that we we kind of do haphazard with just a one to one to one? And do you think do you think getting less plasma had any effect on that? Well, I don't know. I, I think uh, if you look at, uh, let's see, table four, I guess, you look at uh, the two-hour window, the uh, uh, neither the uh, convention nor the tag uh, got plates, it looks like, uh, in that first uh, two hours. Uh, if anything, the conventional did, uh, uh, but a very small amount. And uh, crowd again, wasn't evident in the first two hours. There was more crowd given in the uh, conventional at uh, four hours. So I, I don't think the exact amount uh, could be attributed to uh, the difference in survival. Uh, and if anything, it, it may have been, again, the byproduct uh, in a timing fashion. But the granular of the data just doesn't provide the answers to that. And, and I know you guys are involved with uh, pre-hospital plasma trials. Um, yeah. 
and and how how do these results or the, or this kind of protocol how would that mesh with giving pre-hospital plasma? Uh, you know, if on the one hand you're saying wait until Peg tells you to do it, and on the other hand, if you're saying, well, let's start giving plasma even pre-hospital. Well, that takes us uh, into a different arena about what is the optimal, you know, resuscitation fluid. Mm-hmm. And I, I think all of this uh, recognize that crystalloid is not the answer. Uh, and uh, studies have shown that generic colloids, uh, whether it's albumin or gels and so on, doesn't seem to have a benefit. But again, this plasma having this appropriate balance of all these factors to us seems like the ideal colloid. So you'd have a choice in the field, uh, do nothing uh, or provide something that may improve their physiology. Because uh, we're convinced that crystalloid infusion into the patient uh, who's evolving into uh, advanced coagulopathy is not the answer. And I'm sure you all agree with this. Mm-hmm. So, so the big question then is, you know, next steps or what we extrapolate from this. And, and I think one of the big questions is, what do you think about can this this tag or Rotem success? Can you replicate this at lower volume centers? You know, that that massive transfusion is a lot less common event, and by surgeons who are less experienced and comfortable with making decisions based off TAG or TEM? Yeah, I, I think uh, it is extrapolable, and that's why we called this, you know, a pragmatic study. Uh, and I think what will really catapult that will be when the new generation devices from both Hemonetics and TEM are uh, approved by the FDA and released. Uh, they're approved in Europe, and my understanding is the FDA... Uh, is close to or has approved uh, the 6S amenetics uh, device for the U.S. Now, the beauty of the new generation TAG and uh, uh, Rotom devices is they are fully automated. One of the problems in the past was you had to be a relatively uh, uh, experienced lab technician to get good results uh, because you had to pipe that up uh, the uh, the blood and the reagents and so on and mix them. Uh, whereas now in these devices, you simply take uh, that uh, blue tube, uh, a purple tube, pull out the blood, take the needle off and stick the syringe on a little outlet and it inhales the amount of blood it needs, mixes it with the activator without you touching the activator sprays it into the module and provides uh, results. So it's absolutely completely independent of uh, technical skills. So that will bring it down uh, to, I think, any basically any institution that has the device. Now, the other beauty of these new devices uh, is they are uh, vibration resistant. The Rotom has always been more resistant to uh, vibratory uh, complexities than the hemonetics. The hemonetics now is based on a completely different mechanism, the magnetic field. So these now, uh, not only could they be placed in, uh, in small uh, rural hospitals, but they can be placed in helicopters and ambulances and be used uh, virtually everywhere. 
And obviously, this has a direct interest uh, for the military when these can be taken out to far, far forward uh, stations where you first encounter patients. Sure. So it's really, I think, going to be uh, expand the field. Now, again, I, I'm the first to acknowledge that I would be the first to acknowledge that the devices aren't perfect. Uh, not every signal is interpretable uh, as we would anticipate. But I, I predict as time goes on, uh, either these devices or another device will come along that will give us even better calibration of what we're looking for. Sure. Okay. So, uh, so that that was a great summary of uh, the paper and uh, you know, where we go from here. Uh, Andrew and Dave, you have any other questions? Dr. Moore, I have a question about the exception from informed consent. Your paper, your study used the FDA provision, FDA regulation allowing exception from informed consent at the time of enrollment. In order to achieve conduct of a study under that regulation, you had to convince your regulatory body of clinical equipoise between the two treatment arms using standard coagulation and using TAG. You had to argue that using this TAG-based approach would be at least as good or better. Are there key factoids or or papers that you used when you were making that argument to say, look, the literature up to this point indicates that TEG is at least as good or better. How hard was it to make that argument with your IRB and how did you do it? Well, any argument with an IRB is difficult, as you know. <laughs> uh, but I, I would uh, I would thank particularly uh, John Holcomb for taking some of the arrows on the TEG and uh, to some degree, you know, Ken Maddox in the group at, uh, at the Ben Top. Uh, John's group not only did the clinical, but they did the uh, porcine studies that showed that uh, TEG results were better than conventional lab. And, of course, as you remember, the Ben Top study that uh, was presented at WST, they showed that using uh, TEG was actually superior to one-to-one-to-one. So the combination of those papers, I think those, as I, this has been a number of years, as you can imagine. Uh, but as I remember, those were the uh, seminal reports that we used to uh, convince them that there was equipose. Seems like those are the same things then uh, a trauma center out there that's trying to develop a program could use to make that same argument for getting the instrumentation and training or augmenting staff to, to make it available. That's helpful. Thanks. Yeah, and I think that uh, if you look at the price, you know, aside from logistics and survival, but if you look at the price, which is all what hospitals care about these days, uh, it, it takes cheaper than the battery of tests that would be considered conventional. So for them, uh, let's say the worst scenario is that uh, the results are equivalent. They'll be better off using the TAG. Uh, and particularly now uh, that we have uh, the 6S uh, and advanced Rotom equipment that is technician independent, uh, they literally can't lose on this. All right. Well, that was great. And one one final question, Dr. Moore, and this, this is a bit of a political question. Uh, so are we at the point where, you know, during your verification site visit, 
to be a level one trauma center, uh, you know, should should that be a requirement or a strong suggestion that you are using viscoelastic testing now for your resuscitation as part of your verification? No, I don't think it should be. Uh, I it, we have to acknowledge the limitations. Uh, of our study, it's uh, classic. Uh, I think it was uh, incredibly well done, randomized trial, and as you all know, incredibly difficult because most of these patients come in on nights and weekends, but it's a single institution. And I think it has to be replicated in other environments before we embrace it as uh, the standard. That being said, uh, I think it's gonna be difficult to replicate this particular study. Uh, I think there's so much data now imputing the value of so-called conventional laboratory uh, studies that I would think the IRB might have trouble uh, uh, allowing another study like this to be conducted. But ideally, uh, this would be a beautiful double-AST multi-center trial uh, project uh, in which multiple institutions would test this. I frankly proposed this to the Western Trauma Association probably five years in a row, and no one there knew how to spell tag, and so I, <laughs> there's no way we can do it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Moore, and uh, congratulate you. As you said, this, this is a hard study to do. Uh, a prospect a randomized trial, uh, especially with uh, exception from informed consent. Um, we want to thank you for speaking with us and going over the study, and congratulations on, on a great publication, one that I think everyone everyone in the trauma community should be very familiar with. Well, I greatly appreciate uh, the opportunity to discuss it with uh, this uh, experienced expert group, and I uh, hope I've been helpful. All right, and uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Andrew and Dave, and great discussion. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. It's our pleasure. Thanks, thanks Dr. Moore. Everybody. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. And on the website where this trauma cast is posted, we will also have a link to the paper uh, from Annals of Surgery uh, by Dr. Moore. Uh, and we also have a link to a great East Online CME talk on viscoelastic testing for use in trauma. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.